Come. We must hurry and search the castle. Peter will need everyone we can find. You never knew that Ezekiel 36 and the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe would ever pair so nicely, but they do right in that moment. Mr. Tumnus has been turned to stone by the white witch. Lucy and Susan are there mourning for what's befallen him, and there comes Aslan with his breath to breathe new life in him, to make him new again, and the stone of flesh, or the, the heart of stone has now been turned to a heart of flesh once more, even in a fantasy novel. That's precisely what it means to be made into a new creation in which your heart of stone is turned to a heart of flesh. But what is that for? You know, the first words out of Tumnus's mouth after being turned from stone into flesh was not to say, let's have a cup of tea. He was turned into that new thing for a larger purpose than even himself. That's what it was for. There was work to be done there in Narnia. As we said there from the beginning of our worship, this morning we're asking ourselves the question, what does Paul mean when he says we've been made into a new creation? What does that mean? And, you know, how does that even matter for him to tell us that? Because doesn't most of life feel very old or uh, like the old David Byrne song, same as it ever was? What does it be made to be a new creation? And before we hear the text, I want you to make sure that you don't miss one of the last two verses of that passage because Paul is desperately desirous that those who hear what he has to say about being made a new creation is that they would not receive the grace of God in vain. That they would not give up on what God has done. That they would not settle for something of lesser value. That they would not fail to make the most of what they've been given. Do not let the grace of God be received in vain. What does that mean? I think it means to reckon with in what ways have we been made new and what practical differences that make. We're going to listen to this passage with a very practical eye. And we're going to consider four ways in which we have been made new as a consequence of being made a new creation through faith in him. We've been given a new way of seeing, a new reason for being, a new basis for confidence, and a new mandate of moment, of significance. A way of seeing, a reason for being, a basis for confidence, and a mandate of moment. Let's listen now to what Paul has to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 11. Our central text comes from 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 6, 2. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, 
who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is the word of the Lord. My sense of what Paul is arguing in this passage is that when you place your faith in Jesus, it is more than simply adopting a set of beliefs, though it is that. What he is saying is that something has changed, that an old way has passed, that a new era has begun, and what has begun is entirely at the hand of God. He's the one that purposed it. He's the one that accomplished it. And what we're arguing in this passage is that there are certain marks of being made new. And those marks of being made new are not only good for you, but they're actually what this world is most desperately needful of. That what you've been given, this world needs. And that's my task this morning, is to surface both those ideas in what it means to be made new. And the first way I believe this passage argues in the way we've been made new is that it gives us a new way of seeing. Now, it's always a struggle to drop into the middle of somebody's letter. You're always worried if you're going to take it out of context. But, but this letter is not a lecture. It's a letter. And he's writing to people to whom he has shared with them the news about Jesus. And he is mindful of the fact that when he waltzed into town, they didn't know him from a hole in the wall. They had no reason to trust him. The fact that they listened to him at all was an, ex, an, an, an example of deference. But so he did. A man with no reputation, no following, no credentials. And he comes in there and shares with them the news about Jesus. And two times you hear him speak in that passage about something that is a struggle for us all, and that is to make judgments on the basis of superficial appearances. And if they were to make those judgments on the basis of just his outward appearance, he would be no one to listen to because they don't know him and he has no following. And there are plenty of other people that would waltz into town and have a reputation, have a pedigree, have a standing, have credentials. And in that moment, they might be tempted to immediately go with those voices. And, and so in that sense, David, or rather Paul, David's nowhere to be seen in this one, Paul is actually saying something to us that we are all need to be mindful of, and it's this. We are influenced by any number of things, and, and you, even by listening to the sermon today and singing these songs and praying these prayers, you are, you are having an influence come over you, and yet you will leave from here, and for the rest of your week, you will be influenced by any number of ideas and impressions and narratives, and, and most of those you won't even be sensible to. We're all being discipled by any number of things, and that's why Paul is harping on the fact 
that when it comes to placing your trust in that which you're influenced by, you need to be deathly sure that you're placing your trust in that which is most true of the voices that you hear. And what has come to convince Paul of that truth is no less than what he learned in having his mind changed about Jesus. You, if you know Paul's story, you know there was a season in which all he saw Jesus was was a fake of a leader of a new sectarian cult. And then he has his Damascus Road experience and Jesus changes from a charlatan to the Christ. He changes in his mind from just sort of a, an insidious, sinister magician into the Messiah. And Paul is saying there in verse 16 that as a consequence of seeing Jesus differently, now he sees everyone else differently. He says there in verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. He has an entirely new way of seeing as a consequence of now seeing Jesus differently. And, and that is the same for all of us. That there may be a point in which you can remember, if you have a faith in him, that maybe you saw Jesus as a great teacher, maybe as a one who worked compassion, maybe who one was a worker of wonders, and all of those things are still true of him, but there comes a point in which you say, he is actually more than that. He is more than an example. He is someone to whom I might submit myself to in all circumstances for whatever ways. And as a consequence of seeing him differently, now we begin to see others differently. There's a, a line in that famous sermon that C.S. Lewis gave called The Weight of Glory, in which he speaks of seeing people differently. He said this, There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat, but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. What C.S. Lewis is arguing there briefly is that we all have to beware reducing one another to something that they are not. Of reducing them to perhaps the thing that they are even most passionate about or reducing them to the one thing that we most disagree about them with. Being made a new creation invites, if not demands, us to have a new way of seeing. And that, that serves us in a very practical way. Two practical ways. One, to see newly in that way is to be delivered from the temptation of being foolishly taken in by appearances. Friends, it is true of every culture and of every era that the way we are wired is that we are drawn to that which is larger than life and charismatic and brilliant, seeing nothing about what they are when no one else is around, seeing nothing about what they are in their solitude. This new way of seeing that looks past superficial appearances and looks to the heart will only place its trust in that which can be, you can be confidently assured of what they are when no one else is looking. To see that way is to rescue us from being taken in by that which has all the appearance of bluster and struggle and bravado and, and, and being larger than life and, and actually demanding of something more, a new understanding. That way of seeing helps us in that way. It also, to put it in a very blunt way, it also helps us from, 
from being, falling into the temptation of merely being repulsed by something or someone. Now, in our day, we have all sorts of reasons to be repulsed. There's plenty of things that are repulsive that we can't believe have come to see the light of day and have, and have come to flourish in any number of ways. And, and those things are true. And yet, to be merely and only repulsed by them is actually to see something or someone in a, in a reductionistic light. And if I might put that point in a very stark and difficult frame, uh, there is a documentary that's out entitled Athlete A. And it's about the tragic abuse of young women who were on the U.S. Uh, Olympic National uh, Women's Gymnastic Team uh, by the team doctor. And um, when that individual was finally convicted of all his crimes, uh, dozens of girls that he had abused had an opportunity to issue a victim impact statement. And one of those statements that was outstanding, that stood out, was by someone named Rachel Den Hollander, who's written a book in the wake of that tragedy called How Much Is a Girl Worth? But in her victim impact statement, she read this to the one who had abused her. She said this, You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you've read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you've done in all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without, act, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen this courtroom today. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. She was a victim. She was properly repulsed by all that she had suffered at his hand. But she was not only or merely repulsed. With fierce, honest, probing words, she spoke to him fierce words of grace. Words that by definition of the word grace were words that he did not deserve. But words which spoke to the fact that she would not flatten him into the worst thing that he has done and for which he was properly being punished. When you have this new way of seeing, you will not be foolishly taken in by what is only an appearance, but you will also not be merely repulsed by what you are properly repulsed by. When you see Christ as he is and you see him as he sees yourself, it will change the way you see every single thing and every other person differently. It will have that effect. And that is one mark of being made new. But that's not the only mark. Not only do we gain a new way of seeing, we also have a new reason for being. A new purpose for living. And you hear that put rather succinctly there in verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 
And as we said at the top of the sermon, Paul is, is not arguing that to be made a new creation is exclusively about adopting new beliefs, though it is that. It is actually having a new affection born within us. It is to have a new animating principle, a new inner compulsion that drives everything that we do, such that Jesus no longer becomes merely a subject of academic study, but he becomes one for whom we make sacrifices. One whom, even as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, though we have not seen him, we love him. And we rejoice that there's this undercurrent of joy that holds us to our faith in him, even when the world is crumbling around us. And so Paul is out to make a contrast here. That those in whom Christ has changed their heart of stone into a heart of flesh, that that leads to a whole new compulsion. And therefore, the contrast he is making is one between living for oneself and living for him who died for you and was raised. Now, you would expect somebody like a pastor to say something like that, and you would say, now that's a very noble thought. What difference does it make, though? When we started this series, we, we mentioned the paradox of happiness. And we mentioned that researcher who, who, despite all of his understanding of happiness, he could not escape his own pain. But, but before he died, before he took his own life, he was able to surface for us the paradox that the one way to find your own happiness is not to seek it. That the, as he put it, the hedonic treadmill that we all are tempted to jump on, the desire to always find more and more happiness, that is actually a road to ruin. And the only way to find that happiness is to get off the treadmill. But there's a voice I want you to hear that I just became aware of in recent weeks. And if you drive down I-26 to the University of South Carolina, you can meet her. She's a professor of philosophy. Her name is Jennifer Fry. And she said this in a wonderful article you all should read that's in the sermon resource document this week. She says this, If we want to be serious about our own humanity again, rather than fearful of it, we need not look any further than the source and summit of our practical life which is our natural longing for happiness, where happiness is understood not as feeling good, but as the total and permanent fulfillment of our capacity to desire what we know is truly good. We must try to see in what direction this desire ultimately points us, which is outside of ourselves. There's the paradox again. We think our best life is found by finding it. But what Jennifer Fry and what that, uh, that psychologist up at the University of Wisconsin was arguing and what Paul himself is saying is that our happiness is found by not seeking it. But Paul takes Jennifer Fry and, and maybe that psychiatrist a step further when he is saying that this life, it, it, it's not simply or generically about trying to find your happiness beyond yourself. He's saying that your joy, your happiness is found by seeking the good and the advantage of Jesus himself. That that is your new reason for being. To be made a new creation, you have a new reason for being. Why? Why would that be good? And why does this world need you to have that new reason for being? I'll, I'll give you a reason. Because look, Jesus offers us a kind of inner ballast and stability and truth and love that we will find nowhere else, even though we find glimpses of it or, or shafts of it in other places. But if you seek from other things in this life 
what only Jesus can offer you, then this is the kind of life you enlisted yourself into. You have set yourself up for something that is eminently fearful and ultimately futile. There's all sorts of good things that you might pursue and seek, but when you live for yourself, what you're really saying is that you are trying to live in such a way where you are seeking your own well-being at all costs, by any means necessary, and to try to die without regret. And while those things are natural impulses, and they are not unreasonable impulses, when you make those things your ultimate good, you have set yourself up to pursue that which is prone to both failure and prone to catastrophe. There's too many things that can go wrong in this life to make all those things your inner ballast. There's too many things in this life that can go wrong to make those things your reason for being. And so to live not for yourself, but to live for him is instead to live for his own advantage. Because to live for any number of those things is to live a fearful and futile life. Look, if your whole life, if your whole good is bound up in whether your business survives, as much as we would want any business to survive, if you make your whole good in that, you have set yourself up for fear, if not futility. If you have made your candidate the answer to all your hopes and fears, you have set yourself up for disappointment. If you have made how your children turn out the very index of your worth, you have set yourself up for futility and fear. If you make whatever person is in front of you, your God in that moment, you have set yourself up for a life of fear and futility. If any of those things become your reason for being, you have signed up for something that you will not find satisfaction in. And therefore, this world needs people who will live not only for their own selves, but for the good of something greater than themselves. And because we are revering his memory tomorrow, I would be remiss if we did not remember something very candid among the very candid things he said when Martin Luther King said this many years ago. An individual has not started living until he can rise above the narrow confines of his individualistic concerns to the broader concerns of all humanity. I still believe that standing up for the truth of God is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to do the will of God, come what may. That's our reason for being. And as counterintuitive and as countercultural as that sounds, we have good reason to trust Jesus that his promise is sound. That becomes a reason for being so that we would get off the hedonic treadmill and so that we would not make those things most important, which are things actually that are ultimately frail. But, but how do we do that? Because that's, it's like, it's like being on the trapeze and, and we're swinging on that one, that one swing and, and, and pastor, you're telling us I got to leap, reach for the other swing. And you know what? I, I'm kind of preferred to kind of stay on this one. At least I'm holding on to it and it's holding me up. You want me to fly through space and have that different kind of leap of faith? Yes. Why? Because that gets us to the third mark of what it means to be made a new creation. Yes, it comes with a new way of seeing. Yes, it comes with a new reason for being. But both of those depend on also believing on a new basis for confidence. 
What we are placing our faith in when we are placing our faith in Jesus is to believe that his love is real. And that love compels us. That's what you heard there in verses 15 and 16. But what he is is more than just an example of love, though that he is. For us to understand our new basis for confidence, we have to consider what his love not only expresses, but what his love accomplishes. And you hear what his love accomplishes there in verses 18 and verses 21. He says this, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, it's the day of the Lord. Today's the Sabbath. If you think all you're supposed to do is just listen to the sermon to get the most out of what the Sabbath imagines, no, you're wrong. I might ask you, if not ask myself, to meditate on just those two verses for some time of your day, just to sit with them, to memorize them, to let them turn over in your brain, to consider what implications they have for you. Because what they tell us, what they tell us is our whole new basis for confidence. Look, what is at the heart of every human being, whether we will acknowledge it or not, is this sense of alienation. And that alienation goes deeper than whether we had a bad relationship with our mom. That alienation from all that is good goes deeper than when we're, whether we're suffering from PTSD, as deeply felt as that is. The alienation we are feeling is from something much deeper. And what Paul is getting at in this passage is that our alienation is that is from God. And that what Jesus has done is nothing less than a great exchange. He has taken upon himself what is truest of us, that we might have in ourself what is truest of him. That Jesus takes upon himself what we deserved, that we might receive from him what he deserves. That's the exchange. And by that we are reconciled. That's the gospel. We have from him what is his. And he gives it to us without condition. Friends, all of you, if you get to a certain age, know what it's like to feel estrangement from someone. I've used this example with many of you before. You know what it's like to be estranged, whether it is from a sibling that you love, from a parent that you miss, from a child that you wish you knew where they were sleeping tonight, from a spouse that you have loved for a long season and now are not. You know what estrangement feels like. You know the pain of it. You know the confusion of it. And you can only imagine any number of ways in which you might one day be reconciled and to feel it and to how you might get there. You know what that's like. But that is all of a taste, a glimpse of this deeper alienation that if we're honest with ourselves, we all feel. It's what makes us want to always inject ourselves into conversations because we're afraid we don't matter. It's what leads us to be thinking so much about ourselves, how we're seen, how many likes we get, how many clicks that come, because there is something deeply broken in us that wants to know that we're accepted. Friends, this is the gospel. Your new basis for confidence is that you have received an acceptance from God on the basis of what Jesus has done that can never be taken from you because it wasn't you that secured the acceptance. And that is our new basis for confidence. And with that new confidence, you know why this world needs it? 
Because when you have that confidence, when you can be so self-forgetful because you believe that there is one who will never forget you and has not forgotten you, then anything that you triumph in, anything that you treasure, you might properly give thanks for it, but you may not make it the index of your worth. Anything that you have done well, that you find a satisfaction in, you did not become so inebriated with it to think yourself larger than life. Whatever you have done well at, all that is, is great, but it is nothing compared to what he has for you. And in everything that you failed, in everything that you risked and lost in, in everything that you tried and failed in, in everything that you thought was good, but what you knew was actually out to promote yourself and it failed, whatever you have failed in, even in your sin, even in your guilt, what this reason for being is or what this basis for confidence in is based in this. You have been given a seat at the table of God at His invitation and it is His welcome and it cannot be taken from you and that whatever you have lost, your treasure is in Him. That's your basis for confidence. And that's what this world needs. Humble, grateful people who give themselves to the work that they've been entrusted with, but who are never so mystified as to where their greatest good comes from. That's your basis for confidence. And that leads to the last mark. What does it mean to be made a new creation? It means you've been given a new mandate. A new mandate to put it with a certain rhetorical flourish, a new mandate of moment. By that, a new mandate of significance. And you hear that mandate in verse 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. There's your mandate. Every single person that's listening to this sermon has at least one memory in which you are thrilled, you were thrilled to go share some good news, whatever it might be. Mom, it's here. The mailman delivered it. Honey, we're going to have a baby. Sir, the tumor has shrunk. Baby, war's over. I'm coming home. In each one of those messages, those messages of good news, there was a delight in sharing it. There was a thrill to be able to share it. And that's a good thing. That's part of the joy of sharing good news is what you derive as you're giving it. Friends, if the gospel is true, there is no greater news that you and I might ever be able to share with someone than to say to them, the estrangement that you feel, the alienation that you cannot put a finger on, is something precisely that God has worked surgically and lavishly through His own Son, such that now you are forgiven. Now you are accepted. Now you are beloved. And now you've been entrusted with work that will last for eternity. That is the message that you're given. That is the mandate to be an ambassador of that message, which is in and of itself a privilege to be an ambassador of that message. But friends, not only are you an ambassador of a message, you are also an ambassador of a manner. And I'll tell you that this new reason, this new aspect of being made a new creation is so desperate, what the world so desperately needs, not only because they need to know that there is an acceptance 
and a reconciliation and a work to be done that we all need that's on the basis of grace. But what this world most needs is people who believe that. Who believe that they've been reconciled to God through no work of their own self and only by the basis of grace. And I'll tell you why. Because when you believe that you've been reconciled on the basis of grace, you have become so supremely humbled that here's what happens. I heard of a podcast this week in which they were talking with a hostage negotiator. And of after many decades of dealing with those who were in hostage situations with whom they might have had great deal of rancor and anger for the person that was putting other people in danger, what a hostage negotiator learned through that experience is the one way for you to keep your anger from welling up within you and overtaking your world is to be curious. To be curious about why that other person is acting in the ways that they are, the beliefs that are undergirding their beliefs, the experiences that have led them to take these, make these decisions. When you are curious, it helps diffuse some of your anger and perhaps make a possibility for a fruitful conversation. Friends, there's a lot of things to be angry about these days. There's a lot of things to be repulsed about these days. And yet this world is nailing being repulsed. But being an ambassador of the manner of one who has been reconciled, it allows you or allows you to get outside and on top of your anger such that you might be actually curious about the people who are making you angry to understand them. And when you can become curious about that, there's also a chance that you might even be kind even to those that are acting in ways that you find reprehensible and monstrous. Friends, if you and I are not an ambassador of this manner, then we will never have the chance to be an ambassador of that message. And that's why we need this new mandate of true moment in a world that is so alienated and estranged and polarized. It needs manners and messages. Let me finish this way. Every sermon, in its own sense, is asking us all to repent of something. It's asking me to repent. It's asking you to repent. And if you might find the most explicit admonition to repent, it's what Paul says at the end. Be reconciled to God. If you have never been reconciled to God, if you have continued to think that your best life will be found by your efforts, if you think that you can cover your sin, if you think your world is the best world, you are alienated from him and you need to be reconciled to him. And he makes that invitation to you by his own grace. If that is true for you, I'm asking you because Paul says, because Jesus says, because the Lord says, be reconciled to God. Repent. But even for those who have made that step to accept his grace to be reconciled unto him, this text, I think, asks us to ask ourselves this question. Who might you be reducing to the one thing that you find most reprehensible in them? Who are you flattening down into a reductionist picture of who they are and who you're failing to see? Where, where are you trying to find your greatest well-being such that you have forgotten where your most well-being might be found and that is in living for Him who has come to die for you and raised? And finally, where and upon what have you placed your confidence that cannot bear up under the weight of what this world throws upon you? These are the things we must repent of, that I must repent of. 
because these are the things that point us to the ways in which he has made us new. And it is understanding the ways in which he has made us new that we will finally come to grips with this fact. What has he made us new for? That's our passage. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you hear us. That the first thing you tell us about love is that it is patient. And if that is the first thing that you inspired Paul to say about being loving, then that must be the first thing that is true of you, that you are patient with us. And so that for that, we praise you among other reasons. Father, it's very possible none of us feels very new today. But I pray that you would renew our minds. I pray that you would renew our hearts and not be transformed or be conformed into this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And in so doing, becoming both quieter and stronger within, but more available to the world without. Help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, beloved, wherever you are, I wonder if we might conclude before we finish our last song by joining with me in this prayer to live in Christ. Jehovah God, creator and upholder of all things, it is our privilege is to be under the care of your wisdom, righteousness, mercy, and grace. It is the discovery of your goodness and mercy alone that can banish our fears, allure us into your presence, and help us to confess sin. For in you there is mercy and kindness, exceeding riches through the finished work of your Son. May we always feel our need of Jesus, find all joy and strength in Him. O blessed Spirit, enliven our hearts, renew our mind, work in us the image of the heavenly, that we may know Christ and live in this good news.